Somebody's a Somebody, a podcast where we listen to the stories of others. My name's Joey, and I'm joined here by Christina. How are you doing, Christina? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. Um, you reached out to me, and I was really excited because you sent me your uh, website. And when you did, I read your bio, and you have done some phenomenal things. Um, before we get to that, do you want to tell everybody uh, where you're from and what you do right now? Um, sure. Well, um, my name's Christina Hogue and where, where I'm from is actually kind of a long, complicated <laughs> question that I have a lot of, it's actually several stories, but anyway, I was originally born in New Zealand and, um, I ended up growing up around the world due to my dad's job, uh, in the mining business. Uh, I came to the United States when I was 13 to New Jersey and, uh, oh, okay. I currently live in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And, uh, what do you do for a living right now? Um, right now I, I was a journalist. That's where I had all my, my great adventures. Um, now I write novels and I do like freelance writing and editing, uh, a lot of corporate stuff, uh, speeches for executives, press releases, you know, articles for blogs and op-eds for executive stuff like that. It pays very well, not nearly as, as exciting as, uh, being a journalist, but you know, them's the breaks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's usually how it goes. Um, uh, before we continue on, is there anything that you would like to say before we get to your story? Is there anything you want to, uh, like follow it up with or before you get there? Um, not really. I guess we'll just, we'll just jump in. Just, you know, thanks so much for having me on your, on the show. Of course. Of course. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, yeah, go ahead and, and jump right in and tell your story. Well, as I said, uh, I guess I, I will start, I'll just tell a little bit about it because I did, did have a very unusual um, childhood. Um, my parents uh, met in, uh, it was then called Northern Rhodesia. It was, it's now Zambia in Central Africa. My father was a miner, a mining engineer, and my mother was a nurse from England. My dad was from New Zealand. And um, well, I, I was about to be born and then my parents whisked off to New Zealand, and that's where I was born. And three weeks later, we moved to Fiji, where Dad worked at a gold mine. Uh, then we moved to Sweden, um, England, Nigeria, um, back to New Zealand, and that's where I sort of I went to school, and and um, uh, my memory sort of starts. And then we moved to Sydney, Australia. Uh, sort of for formative years of my childhood. And then, as I mentioned, when I was almost 13, we moved to New, uh, to New Jersey, yeah, northern New wow. Jersey. That's, yeah. that's crazy. What, what's, uh, what has been your favorite place to be? I don't know. You know, every place has a different, <laughs> something different. I mean, Australia was really a, just a cool place to grow up. You know, it really yeah. was. We really liked it. We thought that was going to be our last move, but it turned out not. Dad got a, a, another promotion <laughs> and uh, he'd always wanted to come to America. So here we came. Um, and I tell that just because it sort of has to do a little bit with how it blends into how what I did later with my career as a journalist. Um mm -hmm how I was able to sort of move around and whatnot, as, I, as I'll get to in a minute. But um, yeah, that's so uh, to me moving, you know, we moved countries, we didn't just move from city or state, you know, yeah. it was like, you know, around <laughs> the whole world. Um, so I'm what you call a third culture kid. I never realized <laughs> I was, I actually had like a name, but kids who grow up sort of, uh, you know, like maybe diplomats or what they call business brats as I was, or missionaries, military, um, I call it third culture kids, basically mm. grow up uh, in far, you know, foreign places. 
So that's how I ended up here. Um, so my two things that I wanted to do when I when I grew up was I loved to read and write. I loved writing and I wanted to travel. So my dream was to be a foreign correspondent. Um, so I went to high school in New Jersey. Then I went to Boston University and uh, studied English because I love literature. And but I've always wanted to be get into uh, journalism. So when I graduated, I um, went into small. I started out as a reporter at uh, local newspapers in New Jersey and. I did this for about five years and it was great. It was just, you know, again, you, you just cover so many different things. I loved it. It was a diff different things, you know, all the time. You got to meet people of all different, you know, walks of life. Uh, it was great, but I was still, and again, this goes back to my, my upbringing, moving and traveling all the time. You know, I was getting bored. So I decided I wanted to travel and um, I wanted to go to Europe. So I ended up in Spain for a year uh, teaching English, actually. And I didn't know if I was going to get back into journalism then or not. And, um, and I traveled around Europe a lot. And then I went to live in Guatemala and um, I ended up working for this eccentric American woman ran this weekly English language newspaper in Guatemala City. And so I got back into journalism and it was just, it was just totally different than covering New Jersey, you know, town councils and school boards, and <laughs> zoning boards, you know, <laughs> um, it was just, you know, I was covering all these great things like going on a, a forensic dig with a forensic anthropologist to dig up the, the remains of a massacred village during the 1980s civil war in Guatemala. Wow going out in the middle of the night um, with a, it was an American missionary to, to interview street uh, children, children who lived on the streets, you know, um, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that. It was just uh, people who had survived or, you know, championed human rights, a lot of human right. rights violations and stuff like that. Um, and anyway, after a year or so there, it was sort of a little small and, and I wanted to a bigger platform. I ended up, traveling around Latin America, sort of backpacking for a while. And I ended up in Venezuela and uh, in Caracas. And one of the key things that I loved about Caracas was that you, they had, people had washing machines there. In Guatemala, <laughs> you had to wash your own. Only the very wealthy had washing machines. The standard mm -hmm. of living is, is very much, you know, under what, what we are used to. Um, you know, you don't generally have hot water. Uh, only wealthy people have sort of hot water in their houses it's, and you don't really have a washing machine. So, you know, you have to wash your own clothes, which isn't that bad, except it really takes a toll on the clothes. So your clothes end up getting right. holes in them very quickly. Mm. <laughs> it's very, yeah. Anyway, I learned all about that. But anyway, <laughs> in uh, Venezuela, they did have a, a higher standard of, of living and people had, you know, washing machines. I'm like, hmm. This might be a place to, uh, you know, hang out. So I ended Stay up staying. Seven, yeah, exactly. So I ended up staying seven years in um, Caracas, and I got much back, much more involved back into journalism there. And eventually, um, I became sort of a freelance foreign correspondent, what they call a stringer. So I worked for um, after a while, built up, you know, connections and networking with other journalists, other reporters, foreign reporters at Caracas. Um, and so I started working for Time Magazine, Business Week, um, Houston Chronicle, Miami Herald. I did a lot of work for Financial Times in London, Sunday Times of London, New York Times, um, and, a and a bunch of different um, 
like trade magazines, you know, that actually, again, would trade, it was sort of more boring stuff you would write, but it paid a lot yeah. better, you know. So I would do yeah. like stories about shipping, <laughs> advertising, <laughs> the tea industry, or no, yeah. the coffee industry, you know, things mm. like that for these trade um, places and mining, metals and mining, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the, the best stories were... Um, Really, that local were news stories. Uh, at that time, when I got to Venezuela, it was sort of the sleepy um, country. Uh, as I said, it's, it's been a wealthy country, but it's been very, uh, because of its oil, it has the largest oil reserves outside Saudi Arabia. Um, and they have a huge oil industry, and that, that basically mm. is the economy. Um, but it's been, you know, mismanaged like many other you know, typical Latin American stories, a lot of corruption. Um, but, you know, they were, did able, were able to build things like a huge hydroelectric dam, great highways, uh, world-class, you know, uh, highways, um, you know, universities, all that sort of thing. Um, but over the years, when I, um, you know, it, it, it didn't, like many Oil countries, there's a paradox. Although there's great wealth, the people remain poor. And that's sort of the paradox of, of oil. Um, when I got there, about 58% of the Venezuelan population were poor. Um, and wow. a good chunk of that, about 20, 24% were extremely poor, lived in extreme poverty by uh, World Bank standards. So along came a guy named Hugo Chavez, and um, he was a former army um, lieutenant colonel. And in 1992, he had tried to overthrow the government to, he was a leftist, not a rightist, which is also mm -hmm. unusual for army, a uh, military guy, they're usually mm -hmm. right wing. He was a leftist. Um, and he, anyway, he bungled the coup. The coup didn't go at work <laughs> in 92, and he got, you know, imprisoned. He was thrown into prison. When I got there, this was 95, he had just been released um, by the president, wow. uh, current president had pardoned him. And so he was crisscrossing the country, building a political movement, a political party, and then he ran for president. Um, his big campaign was that um, the Venezuelan population was poor because the elites had stolen the money, that this was a wealthy country, everybody should be wealthy. And right. it was a populist, it was, you know, it was a populist appeal and it worked because people felt very hard done by people were living in uh, little houses on hillsides with no running water, with no telephone lines, you know, things like that. Um, so he was elected by a landslide on a platform to an, of social justice. He called it a peaceful revolution. Uh, what he had failed to do with bullets, he now was, you know, trying with, with <laughs> a legitimate way. Um, but what he did, and and it was, it's funny because, it, you know, years later now we're li just lived through uh, the presidency of of Donald Trump, and there were a lot of similarities that uh, that yeah. actually kind of hit me between <laughs> Chavez and Trump, although they're completely, you know, antithetical, completely opposite right. uh, poles. But um, so Chavez started sort of really shaking up the powers that be and the order of things, everything, trade unions, laws. He rewrote the Constitution. Um, wow. He really just and what he did is he 
he just the, the elite who basically control the, this, this small sort of layer of, of upper middle class or really upper class um, people hated him, of course, because no. he was threatening his, their of way of life, basically. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to nationalize all the big industries. He, he hated the, the media. The media hated him because they were controlled by these um, wealthy people, wealthy owners. So it began to be sort of like this very much an us versus them type of thing. And Chavez went, would hold these huge rallies. He would um, gather tens of thousands of people, you know, which were mostly the poor, poor people um, who just thought he was their savior. You know, I mean, they just adored him. Uh, and he would get these rallies and he would just rail against the middle class, uh, the upper middle class. And it, so he very much sort of... Um, created a, this, this polarized atmosphere of us versus them. Um, so eventually, I'll say one of the um, biggest stories, probably the biggest story I've, I've covered in my, in my career, um, was the coup in 2002. There was a coup attempt against Chavez. And um, it, it was a long time in coming, and this was what the elite had wanted. You know, there was all right. the, there were all these rumors. They just wanted to get him out. You know, they wanted <laughs> him out by any means necessary. You know, and um, finally, one day, Chavez was trying to get more and more control over the oil company, which mm-hmm. was brought in all the money to to Venezuela. Um, so he one day he had a TV show. He had a, uh, the, again he would get blasted in the media. So he would criticize the media. He started his own TV show, his own newspaper, his own radio mm-hmm. station. You know, um, right. and he went on his TV show on a Sunday morning and he fired all the top executives of the oil company, Petróleos de Venezuela. <laughs> And it was pretty amazing, you know, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, he, he was, you know, on live television, he would just say, you know, you know, Joe Perez, uh, you know, you've been where he picked, picked up a, a paper and he said, oh, I see you've been working at uh, Petroleos de Venezuela for 22 years. That's great. Well, thanks so much for your service. You're fired. <laughs> wow. uh, yeah. And, you know, you can retire now. So he did this, it was about, I was, I can't remember, maybe 15, there were, you know, it was quite a few, uh, mm-hmm. and one after the other, you know, they all got fired. The employees of the oil company just went nuts, right. um, thought he was going to take this over, this was going to become this corrupt uh, company of political patronage, like many of the other Venezuelan um, companies and industries. Um, so they went on strike. They called a strike. Um, and this, of course, started rocking the global oil markets. Um, tankers uh, were, were, couldn't load. The, the, the dock workers wouldn't load the tankers. Mm. Uh, the refinery managers would slow, were slowing down the piece of refinery. They couldn't actually turn it off because it would really cause damage, but they slowed down the refinery operations. Uh, the, the, at the out in the oil fields, they stopped. They again, they slowed down the oil pumps, right? At the wellheads, so the whole thing was sort of screeching to a halt. Um, and meanwhile, the opposition, which were all the business owners, decided this is our moment. We're gonna we're gonna jump on this bandwagon, and they called um, a general strike. And a general strike is something that usually a strike, it's like the workers go and they won't go to work. And a general strike, it's the businesses close the, their doors so the workers okay. have no place to work. 
to so where... basically they yeah so basically they shut down the country and the the goal was to make this such a rocky in a unstable unstable place that it they wanted to sort of rock Chavez out of the country for him to say, right. you know what, this is ungovernable. I'm not going to be able to govern, you know, he'll just, yeah. and that had actually worked um, previously, many decades before they'd gotten a, uh, a president out that way. But Chavez wasn't leaving, you know, it was, he would just go on and rail on TV for hours on end, so-and-so. So they called a march after a couple of days of the strike. And, and of course, after a couple of days, people wanted to go back to work and the businesses wanted to open if they were losing money. Um, they called this big rally um, in downtown Caracas and hundreds of thousands of people showed up. It, it had to be, the estimates were up to 200,000. It was just, just this river of people mm-hmm. in opposition to the president. So they were going to march through the city to the presidential palace and hold a rally calling on him to resign. Um, So I went down to cover the rally and uh, I was writing for the Miami Herald that day. And it was like a party and people were chanting and singing and waving flags. And, you know, they were really fired up and the march went off and off they went. I went back to my apartment to file the first story. So after a couple hours, they get to... um, near right downtown where the presidential palace was. By this time, the pro-Chavez people had gathered in force and um, they were up on a, like an overpass looking down mm-hmm. where the, the, anti, the anti-group was, was gonna come. Um, so they were waiting there and people were like really, some, you know, were ready for some kind of explosion was gonna happen. Um, when the, the anti-Chavez march arrived, shots rang out um, and they, was, they were fired upon. You know, people were firing right. guns. Um, so all chaos, of course, broke out. Um, yeah, of course. They were screaming, you know, everybody was just running for their lives. Um, you know, it was just, they called out the National Guard. They, you know, it was just, and then they started throwing rocks. And st- you know, it just turned into this huge melee, huge riot. Um, the end of the day, a curfew was called. Uh, everybody, you know, went home. Nineteen people were dead. Um, oh God. Yeah, and so then the generals um, went to the palace because the military was not going to condone. And at this point, it was it was viewed that the that Chavez had ordered his his supporters or his uh, or the National Guard to shoot on. The, the marchers, who's yeah. a, the opposition yeah. march. So the military generals were not going to condone this, you know, gross violation of human rights. It's, right. you know, Venezuela is a democracy. They were not going to, people can march, they can protest the president. So the, the, we saw, you know, everybody's in, at home and watching on TV and the generals march up the steps into the palace. And then it was just, we were just waiting to see what would happen. Um, about two in the morning, um, one of the generals, actually Chavez's right-hand man, came, comes on and says Chavez has resigned. So at this point, the opposition has kind of won. You know, right. they've got him out. Um, everybody went to bed. Um, the next morning, I went out, and it was just like deathly quiet. I mean, it was just a, this really eerie silence in this mm-hmm. normally very bustling city. But it was like the whole city was just in shock over right. what had happened. Um, 
So now the opposition is saying, well, we won, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're going to put in our new government, blah, blah, you know, and they already had their government already, you know, formed up. And and uh, they had this guy who was going to form an interim government and um, uh, with, the, with the military. And they swore him, he swore himself in, actually. So meanwhile, um, you know, the, the pro-Chavez people were like, had gone into hiding, basically afraid of what was going to happen. And meanwhile, people were starting to say, well, where, where is Chavez? What happened to him? Um, right. You know, is he alive? Is he dead? And by the way, where's his letter? Where's this, where's it, where did he resign? And then somebody else called a press conference. I think it was like the attorney general said, this is, this is illegal. He said, he said, if Chavez resigned, the vice president should be Right, the president in. should take over. Yeah. This is this new government is completely illegal. This is a coup. Right. Um, so it just you know, and then some the Organization of American States got in. Uh, you know, involved call for investigation. The United States at that point supported this new government, even though it was a little questionable. Of course, uh, they <laughs> did not like uh, Chavez one bit. Um, so. So this sort of went on. This was a Friday. By Saturday morning, looting had started. Um, you know, everything was sort of shut down. You know, nobody mm-hmm. knew what was going on. There was sort of anarchy broke out in the streets, and there was looting, and people were burning cars and burning tires. And uh, meanwhile, the anti, the pro-Chavez people were sort of gathering and started to gather at, at, at the um, military base, saying, "Where's we want Chavez? Where is he? Where is he?" And he was. Apparently, nobody still knew where he was. He was taken prisoner. Um, they, you know, and everybody else was just, you know, the the middle class was and, and the, the upper, uh, more wealthy sec- segments of society were just jubilant, you know, going around tooting their horns. They were gathering outside of the Cuban embassy because they, you know, Chavez was buddy-buddy with Fidel Castro. So they were like, ranting and raving in front of the Cuban embassy. We want you to leave. I mean, it was just like crazy. It was like this really crazy atmosphere. Um, And then um, the tide started to turn Uh, by Saturday night. uh, The Chavez people sort of, you know, there there was this growing recognition that this was like, you know, this was untenable because still no letter had been produced any, you know, uh, hard evidence that Chavez had, in fact, right. resigned, or whether they just sort of said he had resigned, you know, whatever, right, right. Uh, where he was again, and was he dead, well, you know. Um, so this went on, and then Sunday, people were starting, it was sort of becoming apparent that, um, oh, and the other thing, the major thing, too, this new government, the new president, which who was a businessman who owned a chemical company, um, one of his first acts, you know, quote unquote, in office was to dissolve the Supreme Court and Congress. In other words, he had set himself, he immediately set himself up as like a dictator. Right. Yeah, so that sounds like a dictatorship. Yeah. So the um, military didn't like this. You know, they didn't get rid of this, you know, alleged human rights violator to for this guy to set him up. Right. So, so they were so they were coming up. So, you know, they were pressuring this new guy, Carmona. You know, and things were getting just increasingly shaking. It was looking like, you know, this, this new government really was, you know, really was illegal. They hadn't proved any anything to the point. So 
by Sunday, they kind of like abandoned the presidential palace and went into hiding. And the pro-Chavez ministers and government sort of came back into the palace and started right. saying, all right, we've got to find out what's what's going on there. And then they had located Chavez, who was being held prisoner in a little island off, off Venezuela and the Caribbean. <laughs> wow. um, and they brought him back. You know, So by Sunday night, by then, thousands of people had gathered um, in the street outside the palace and and Chavez came, uh, he was helicoptered in and landed on the, on the roof and came out on the balcony and, uh, and everybody cheered. And that sort of really cemented him too. Cause like they couldn't even get him out, you know, it's like, they right, had yeah. him. and so his popularity among the, the poor and whatever, just, you know, escalated even more, you know, yeah. skyrocketed. So it was just, it was just like four days of, uh, anarchy of just, Three, you know, it was like three different governors, people had been sworn in presidents, you know, after they got the other guy out, then the real vice president showed up out of hiding and he right. got sworn in. <laughs> it was just crazy. Wow. That, that sounds yeah. absolutely insane. Like, what, uh, How were you feeling like in the midst of all that? Were you like really panicked or were you figuring out that things you think things were going to be OK or where were you at? I was just busy. I mean, I was just so busy. People were calling me from London, um, you know, from the States, what was going on. I was on the radio from, you know, Trinidad, from, you know, everybody was like, wanted to know what was going on. Because nobody, really right. you know, nobody really knew in Venezuela either. But, you know, they, so I was just like super busy. And it was mm. just, um, you know, I, I lost several pounds. I just didn't even have time to eat. You know, it was, wow. really, it was just crazy over this this time and um so i just kept you know churning out articles and sending them and you know telling people what was going on um the real the the sort of the end thing to this story was that in the days later it emerged that it was this hardline group of, of right-wing generals who had an admirals or whatever they had set this up um they had actually Put snipers on these on the buildings where the march was coming to mm -hmm. fire on the crowd to fire on the protesters. So as a as a way to move to 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 push the military into taking action against Chavez. So it was wow. really this sort of the word that comes to mind is dastardly plot, you know, right. evil sort of plot, um, you know, to sacrifice people so they could get their political. Yeah, that's, that's very that's very sad um yeah it, it's 19 lives lost for that for something that i mean in their eyes didn't even happen is is insane you know right it was all a big uh this big scheme that they knew setup. they needed something to make them because the military was the only you know force in those countries that really can push you know if, if you, the presidents always have to have the support of the military um, right. Yeah. It is. Here it's it's a little bit different, but you know, there, you know, uh that's how they, you know, do coups. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're the guys with yeah. the tanks and guns and uh, you know, you you've gotta have them on your side. If not, you know, you could Yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean it's it's it must have been incredible to be there to see that um kind of very historical moment of of this this country going from not not like extremely stable, but it had a structure to being very shaky and then back to the original structure, all within a span of what you said, four days, yeah, four or five yeah, days. It was that's, just, yeah. that's, that's amazing. 
it really was insane. And, um, you know, and then everybody's like, well, we, you know, we had it, but then, then they bungled it, you know, everybody's yeah. like, oh, we, we got them out. You know, we had something going there right. and then they went too far, you know, they went too right. Far. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, what ended up becoming of that area afterwards? Like did, did things get better for everybody? Did things kind of continue to go down? Well, after or? that, Chavez got really hard line, um, in his, in his sort of move towards socialism. He made no bones, but before that, he had never sort of said, word, said the word socialist. People were always afraid that he was going to turn Venezuela into another Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, no, no, you know, this is going to be a, a totally different sort of, you know, just, a, you know, we want social justice. After that, after the, the, that coup attempt, he just went, you know, head on into, yeah, this is a socialist um country you know right he, he right. was going to make this into and he started confiscating um you know nationalizing companies and businesses industries all that kind of stuff and really after that a lot of venezuelans you know left and ended up in miami much like the cubans mm-hmm. uh, decades before so, wow. so. That's, that's that's very interesting um well that's yeah, that's a crazy story uh that's something i've I've never even, well, one never even heard of, I'm not very good at world history, but um, to know that you were there and you were doing like reporting on it while it was happening, that's, that's incredible. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of speechless just hearing you talk about it. Yeah. Um, it was, it was an amazing thing because, you know, in this country, you know, a coup or the government, it seems is like bedrock. You know, right. I mean, it's just like, it's a stable country and the mm. country, it, it doesn't, you know, matter too much who's who's in washington the country keeps going you know i mean right things are gonna happen yeah i mean it just keeps going um the states have a lot of power each state and whatever Mm -hmm. so it's kind of you know it it was really something different to see when in these other countries you know the governments are just so unstable and right and in elections are much more about ideology rather than um you know very different ideologies rather than you know, personalities and stuff. Right. I mean, yeah, really, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what, um, that's kind of what I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around is because, you know, growing up in America, it's just, this is the way things are. And it, like, no matter who comes in, no matter who does what things will continue to be this way. So to think about a place where it seems like a stiff breeze kind of knocks everything down is kind of really hard to like, kind of wrap my brain around because it's just so, I'm just so used to being stable. You know, right. and not to say that America is perfect because it has a lot of things it could fix. Um, but right. just but there is a structure here. But and mm-hmm. just to hear about a place where it just seems so, like you said, unstable, it, it is hard to uh, to put myself there and imagine that in a place where at any minute things could kind of go go south. Um, yeah, uh, you learn to really appreciate that stability. And that's what people leave those countries and come here for you know it's right. it's um you learn to really appreciate that because you cannot build i mean you, that, that's why these countries just don't progress that much you know it's like mm-hmm. one step forward two back one because right. they just um the instability you just don't know what's the government changes the whole ideology change you know the whole ideological shift of government swings from from mm-hmm. right to left and left to right um and, you know, and, the, and there's a lot of corruption. Um, the other thing that happened, too, was that um, after the 
after that, you know, the, the Chavez government really got corrupt and it really, because mm-hmm. it had so much power. And that, right. you know, to so many people was just an invitation to, um, you know, set up currency exchange schemes to, you know, order payoffs to for, for contracts, you know, kickbacks, mm-hmm. um, you know, all kinds of things, really. Um, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that's, it, yeah, it is. I'm, I'm sure that once you get the more people on board, the more likely something, something like that is going to happen. Um, especially with total power comes, uh, inevitable corruption is what it seems like, uh, at least to me. Um, yeah, yeah. there's no checks or balances, you know, there's no, right. There's nobody there to check. Yeah. Yeah. There's nobody there to call somebody out on it. It's just, everyone's looking the other way. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's an incredible story. Is there anything that you want to add to it before we move on? No, I think that's it. I mean, now we can see, you know, Chavez died in 2010, was it? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just gone. You know, now Venezuela is just a, a basket case of a, of a place. Um, right. And it's really just a, a sort of a, a, a facade of democracy at this point. It's, it's really yeah. gone. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate um, to have this this place, which could be great, but because of political reasons it, it is wearing a mask with a uh, with an ugly face behind it um mm-hmm. but but thank you so much for telling that story that's that's truly amazing um before we uh we head over to the to the plug segment and stuff i have three random questions i would like to ask you um sure. they're they can be a little weird some of them are pretty straightforward but um your first that's question... okay i like weird <laughs> <laughs> that's all right uh, your first question is, what talent would you want to possess if you could? Like if you can have any talent in the world, what would it be? Hmm. Like a, almost like a superpower type of thing? Sort of yeah, either you can go either like a superpower or like just like the ability to just play all instruments or like the ability to be uh, to speak every language you could do. You could do whichever, either or. Yeah, I would like to speak. I, I, I love languages. I would, I'd love, I would love to speak, uh, you know, all I'd just be instantly able to speak uh, yeah. a language. To translate. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. When, if you speak another language, it just opens up a whole other world when you can communicate right. with other people. Um, it really does. So I would, yeah, that would be a great thing. Yeah. Um, I would love to just live, I would, you know, my goal one day, I would love to travel to every single country um mm-hmm. in the world you know yeah. too well, another... it sounds like you got a head start on most people you've been to a lot of places yes <laughs> um your your second question um this one is a weird question uh you've been given an elephant you but you can't get rid of it what would you do with it hmm. an elephant I don't know. I would, I think I would keep it and, um, and I would have to find some place to house it. Obviously that would be the most difficult thing with the, with, with the, with that, but I don't know. I think I would keep it and and just, uh, and have it. Or I, if I could maybe ship it back to where it came from and let it go in the wild. Maybe that actually, maybe that would be the better thing if I put it back in, uh, you know, Africa or India, wherever it came from. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's smart. That's what I would, I would, if I could, if it wasn't, 
obviously the whole concept of being bred in captivity. Um, they say if an animal is right. bred in captivity, it can't be let out in the wild, but there's places that try to rehabilitate it for that. Um, but yeah, that's a great answer. I would love to have a pet elephant, but I don't know where I would Yeah, go. I probably would try for, you know, keep it for a little while. I'd probably get pretty un- <laughs> unwieldy. Yeah, yeah. Especially living in LA, I'm sure it'd be a bit hard. Um, your last question is, uh, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? Hmm. Well, I would love to, I, I would, I wish that everybody would be, um, open-minded, you know, um, I think that, you know, every, if everybody could be more open-minded or, or not, mm-hmm. um, live and let live, maybe that's the, the yeah. you know, not, not, um, seek superiority over others or, or yes. judging, you know, for way, mm-hmm. different ways we live. Um, Let's see. Second wish. Um, hmm, I think I would wish I could win, a, I don't know, the Nobel Prize or something. Okay. Yeah. Pulitzer Prize, Nobel Prize, one of those, one, a big literary yeah. prize. Um, <laughs> let's see. And third wish. Um, Yeah, if I won the lottery and I could, uh, you know, give away a lot of money. That is very, very kind. Um, Yeah, that's, I always think about um, people who win the lottery and they they win, let's say $400 million. Like I don't, there's a lot of horror stories about people who win the lottery and then go crazy because, you know, I'm going to call it new money. But um, if, if I won $400 million, I would donate a lot of it. Um, because I don't know what I would do with $400 million. I would, I would do everything I need. I would take care of myself and my family. And then from there, um, I would probably invest a chunk and then I would donate the other chunk. And then with whatever I invest, uh, every time I get earnings back on that investment, donate a chunk of that and then invest the other half and let that keep rolling. Um, but that's right. just me. Form like a foundation I'm not too and sure about other like people. a philanthropic <laughs> foundation and, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Make a foundation, kind of like a a Bill Gates foundation and work on... Right, yeah. Help others. Right. I mean, how much money do you really need? Yeah, I don't... um, It's Especially when you talk about in the billions, billions of dollars, you can... mm -hmm. Somebody did the math. I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but it's like if Jeff Bezos spent... It was something like... $400,000 $400,000 a day, it would still take them 150 years to, to mm. go broke. And it's like, why do you need that much money? And when no, there's people that are like, yeah, people oh, that are dying. Yeah. Right. And I mean, just uh, don't even have the, uh, you know, water in their village or something. Right. Know? Yeah. Like you, uh, you could just completely change so many people's lives, but it's, yeah, I don't know. He got there somehow, didn't he? So something tells me it's, it was based on morals and values. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming and telling your story. It was it was truly amazing. Um, I mentioned it before, but I'm hoping to have you on again because it, it seems like you have a lot more stories to tell. Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. I, I really had a good time. I I did a um what I would do is I would pick story I traveled all over Latin America and the Caribbean doing stories. So I would go somewhere and, you know, do a story or, or a couple stories and, you know, sell the stories that would pay for the trip and a little bit more. So I ended up Doing a lot of stories, I think, um, you know, in Central America, um, 
you know, I went looking for landmines in, in Nicaragua and peace talks with with guerrillas in, in Colombia. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. it was um, very, uh, so I did a lot of, lot of stuff, you know. Yeah, we're definitely going to have you back on because I definitely want to hear about all those. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> that was the then. longest story. The uh, the coup yeah. story was a long. I apologize, it was a long story. Oh, don't worry know. about it. It's I, I was. They're not as long. Didn't even notice the time. Um, uh, it's. Do you have anything you want to plug or promote? Um, I know you have your website and all that. Yeah, I've got my website, christinahope.com, and uh, I've got two books there. One, I've written two novels. One's based on, uh, which actually is a story uh, in of itself, um, based on, sort of drawn from members, from interviews I did with gang members in El Salvador, was sort of the inspiration for that book, and it's called Skin of Tattoos. And the other one is called Girl on the Brink. It's a young adult novel um, about a girl who gets involved with the wrong guy, and it's sort of a... Mm cautionary tale of dating abuse and abusive relationship. That's, that's I actually very... volunteer at a um, shelter as a facilitator for um, domestic violence uh, support. Wow. wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll definitely check out your books. They seem very, very interesting. Um, if anybody out there is listening to this podcast and they want to be on, you can reach out to me on Instagram at everybody.is.a.somebody. Um, I would love to hear everybody's stories. Um, but until then, thank you so much, Christina, for being on. It was it was a true pleasure to hear your story. No, oh, thanks, Joey. Yeah, yeah. Um, we will see everybody next episode. Uh, have a great time.